We have held a number of Hebrew scriptures this fall in our uh, series that is flowing right into Advent. And so here this morning, Esther is another story of nuance and in complex, with complexity. Although if you think about it, wherever there are human beings and relationships, we have nuance and complexity. So this morning, Esther is alongside the book of Ruth, which we looked at this past summer, as being the second book that is named after a woman. We could call Esther yet another unlikely candidate to be used by God. She was young. She was female. She was without parents. She was orphaned and raised by her cousin, Mordecai, in a time when her religious community was in exile. They had been scattered throughout the Persian Empire. And it had been long enough for the Jewish community to have assimilated into the, the smaller towns that they were in across the empire. And so there was intermarrying and working alongside their Persian neighbors. The Persian Empire's king, King Aceris, was in search of a new queen. And so a call went out. A call went out to the city of Susa, where, they were where uh, Esther and Mordecai were living, for virgin women to be gathered up and to be selected to join and to enter into the king's court. And Esther was one of those who was chosen. And that is how she was able to enter into the king's court. And so over a span of a year, she was coached within the king's palace, if you will, within the, the area in which the king lived on how uh, to live within that area, along with these other young women. And after over a year of following these customs, she was chosen to be queen. And I should note, too, that at the very beginning of this process, Mordecai coached Esther to not disclose that she was a Jew. So we are with the understanding that nobody within the king's court knew that she was a Jew. So through twists and turns of power, King Aceris made Haman his right-hand man. And with it came enough power that the king commanded people to bow down to him. And Mordecai, who was a faithful presence at the king's gate, refused to do so which in turn infuriated Haman. So out of his anger, Haman went to the king and he connivingly got the king's support to create an edict that all the Jews in the Persian Empire were to be killed. And this edict's date was set by shaking a dice and rolling it. And the date ended up being close to a year later. Now, this edict wasn't an operation that was to be carried out by the military. 
It was to be carried out by the Persian people, neighbor to neighbor. And as the Jewish people were scattered, the edict was, for in, in essence, for the Persians who were intermarried and working with their Jewish uh, neighbors to see them as the enemy. It was a systematic dehumanizing of a people group. And all of this occurred before our scripture this morning. And as noted, there was much anxiety within the Jewish community. And Mordecai himself chose to make a public display of this injustice by wearing sackcloth and ashes and making quite a ruckus in the middle of the city. He drew lots of attention to himself. So much so that Esther, within the safe confines of the king's court, hears about this spectacle that Mordecai is making and sends him clothes. Quiet down. You're making, you're making too much noise. You're getting too much attention. Or perhaps she was saying, clothe up so you can get in here to tell me what's going on, for nobody was able to enter in wearing sackcloth. Whatever the case, Mordecai fills Esther in on the gravity of the situation, and so they use their message bearers back and forth to communicate. And Mordecai communicates that perhaps such a time as this, he says. You, Esther, in the king's court, as queen, can do something about this incoming calamity. Esther clearly faced challenges growing up as a female exiled and orphaned. It was a matter of her survival to navigate the nuances of her status. Therefore, she was all too familiar with a lack of power. And once Mordecai shook the scales from Esther's eyes to see that she was not immune to this edict, that death may befall her either way, she was able to begin thinking creatively about where her power did lay. She used all that she learned and surviving as a child through the eyes of observation to her advantage. So when Mordecai put her life on the line, she was emboldened and empowered to see the agency and power that she did have. In her wisdom, she calls upon her people to join her in a communal fast she may have been the lone Jew within, this, uh, within the king's court, but there was something about doing it with a knowledge of her people alongside of her that gave her more power. She recognized the power in community. Esther proceeded to act in ways that were creative 
and demonstrated her ability to master the relationships and the system around her. She was able to speak the language that caught the king's attention. She stroked his ego. She offered beauty and honor. She dressed up as a queen, and she threw not one but two banquets. Along with his sidekick, Haman, who had connived the edict to, be in, to begin with. And as a result, she was able to gain the king's trust and unveiled the scheme of Haman, leading to his demise. She and Mordecai ended up being honored and given Haman's house in return. This is a story where not all is right with the world. Power was corrupt. The people of God were scattered, and yet, in the midst, the lowly were given power, and the powerful were brought down. Does this sound familiar? How many times have we heard stories of God's kingdom where those who don't have the power are lifted up, and those who do have the power are brought down. The image in Isaiah of a branch out of the stump of Jesse offers both a humble and promising image. A tree that once held strength, but no longer stands, still has life that will generate new growth. And our Luke passage that we heard this morning is Zechariah's first words after John the Baptist was born, after being mute for the duration of time that the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah and said, you in your later years with Elizabeth will have a child. Zechariah praised God for the redemption that was to come to pass. A savior was to come. So yes, Esther may be a non-traditional Advent story on Peace Sunday. But that seems to be the way that God works throughout salvation history. God works at redeeming the brokenness in the world and in our lives. Esther may not have felt like she had much uh, of anything to offer. But how her early years prepared her in a way that she had no way of knowing for what she orchestrated in this story, a redemption of a people that she held dear. We each, too, have a story within us one in which our childhoods shape our pains and our gifts. One in which shapes the embedded narratives that we tell ourselves over and over again, either of how good enough we are or how not good enough we are. And all of this instructs us in how we perceive the power and the agency that we have. That coupled with Advent in this time of waiting 
and recognizing that all is not right with the world. Waiting can be a way of exercising privilege if it is passive. It can be a bubble of comfort waiting for someone else to take action. But I think the invitation here in Esther, as it ties with Advent, is that Advent is an all-hands-on-deck. Yeah, all it isn't enough to, help, to wait for the help to come from someone else or to come from above or another corner of the church or town or world. Advent is a time of active waiting, trying to figure out how we can be a part of bringing about God's upending peace. What does it take to tap into our creativity? What does it take to lean into relationships and exercise our imaginations of how the divine seeds of peace can be planted and nurtured. Our fates are tied together. Esther exercised much wisdom. She saw the power of community. We are not Christian, we are not peep creatures to endure life alone. We need each other. She also was a master of the people and systems of power of her time. She knew how to speak the language that would be heard. That mixed with God's presence in this story brought about redemption. We often couch our inaction in the words of insecurity or humility. And the fact is that we all have gifts that stem from our life experiences that can be offered wherever we are. So what has your life prepared you for? What has life prepared you to be and do for such a time as this? How can we be present enough with God, ourselves, and our community to create seedbeds of peace? The communion table is a place where all of who we are, mind, body, spirit, meet. It is a tangible symbol of God's desire to be in relationship with us. Christ's love, which surpasses death itself, and the Spirit's flow of energy, which goes beyond our human understanding. It's a place where we surrender to our own will in order to be fed. And as we are fed, we're able to be open to ourselves and to one another. And in the openness, we are more fully able to walk into the awareness of the fullness of such a time as this.